night. Well, we have been singing and speaking about the gospel this morning already, so hopefully that's moving around in your mind, but let's, let's come back to that subject again a little bit and ask you uh, what might be, you might think, sort of a fundamental question, kind of a rudimentary question, but I'm going to ask it anyways, and that, what is the gospel? If you were to have somebody come to you and, and to say to you, I hear you Christians talk a lot about the gospel, but can you explain it to me? What is it? Well, the word means, of course, good news. So that's a start. Okay, so the gospel is good news. And then the person says, okay, well, what's the good news? And then where do we go from there? Where do we go from there? Let me suggest some places we don't go. The, uh, the gospel is not about morality. It's not about morality. So, so we don't go to begin to talk about how one is supposed to behave, how one is supposed to conduct their lives. Certainly the gospel promotes and empowers a true morality, but that is, that is a byproduct of the gospel. That is not the gospel. But the gospel is not about moral reform. The gospel is also not about community. It's not about community. And when I say the word community, I mean loving, authentic relationships between people in which barriers are broken down and, and people are able to live in, in relationship with one another as God intended them. That is not the gospel. It is a byproduct of the gospel, to be sure. The gospel creates true community, but that is not what encompasses the gospel. Here's another one for you. The gospel is not mercy. The gospel is not about mercy. That is, it is not about relieving human suffering. That is not the gospel. Certainly, the, the love, care, concern, and, and active uh, involvement in trying to relieve human suffering is, again, a byproduct of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. So back to the question, what is the good news? What is the gospel? Well, very, very simply, the gospel is that because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have our sin forgiven. And we can be restored back to a relationship with God our Creator. That is the gospel. It's simple, and yet it is profound. Simple and profound. And it is the gospel, my friends, that separates Christianity from all other religions. All other religions. All other religions have some aspects of morality and community and and mercy and so forth, but they are not Christian. It is only Christianity that has at its core the forgiveness of sin the forgiveness of sin. Open your Bibles up to Matthew 9, because that's what I want to get at with you this morning. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 together. I've entitled the message, Seeing Forgiveness. 
seeing forgiveness. And there's a, a bit of a paradox built into that title. And if you're sharp, there's a pun built into the title as well, but you'll see. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. We have been saying here as we work our way through Matthew's gospel that the chapters 8 and 9 are strategically placed here by Matthew as he recounts the public ministry of Jesus Christ for a specific purpose. The purpose is to demonstrate the authority of Jesus as the great Messiah, the messianic king long foretold in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. And in chapters 8 and 9, there are a series of miracles. There are nine of them. And these miracles point to Messiah's kingdom. They give us a glimpse of Messiah's kingdom. Each of them can be traced back into the Old Testament and to those conditions that the prophets foretell of the great messianic kingdom. That that's what it's going to be like someday when Messiah establishes his kingdom here on earth. And so as as Jesus conducted himself at this time in his public ministry here in Galilee, it was a time of great miracles because he was giving people a taste of the kingdom. He was giving them a glimpse of the kingdom and his kingdom authority. And it was designed to lead them to believe upon him as their great king. Now we've looked at five miracles together so far. And these miracles point to Jesus' authority over disease, over nature, and over the realm of Satan. But this morning, here in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 and running through verse 8, we have a sixth miracle, but we have a different kind of miracle. This miracle points to Jesus' authority over sin, His authority over sin. It addresses the critical issue of forgiveness. Because without forgiveness, beloved, there is no entrance into Messiah's kingdom. It comes through a spiritual door. We have said this many times. It is a physical kingdom entered through a spiritual door. And it is the door of forgiveness. Many, many places in the the Old Testament prophets, they speak about forgiveness and tie it to Messiah's kingdom. The prophet Isaiah speaks of such things. The prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel earlier, Simon referred to Ezekiel 36, in which there, the prophet there speaks about the day in which the heart of stone is removed and replaced with the heart of flesh and, and sin is dealt with, forgiveness. So here we are in this account, opening up chapter 9 here, the healing of the paralytic. And we find an an interesting linkage here. Because in this account, sin and disability are linked together. Sin and disability are linked together. And not in that one is a direct cause of the other, but rather that the curing of one is to be taken as proof of the authority to deal with the other. The ability to to heal is to demonstrate the authority to forgive. That's why I've entitled the message, Seeing Forgiveness. So 
something that is invisible can be seen for those who have eyes of faith. So let's take a look at the passage together here. I've I've got an outline for you. I've I've just sort of selected five words. So it's a five-word outline, and I'm using these words as as an outline to hang our thoughts on. Let me read the section with you. Verse 1, chapter 9, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Five words. The first word here is compassion. The first word is compassion, verses 1 and 2. Matthew is is stitching these accounts together for us, and so he does that in verse 1, getting into a boat. You remember we last left Jesus here when he was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the territory of the Gadarenes, the end of chapter 8. So Matthew stitches this together and says Jesus got into a boat and he crossed back over the sea to Capernaum, which is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's about six miles in that trip in good weather. So Jesus crosses over the sea and he comes to his own city, the city of Capernaum. Capernaum. And we know that that is Jesus' city. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, we are told that Jesus relocates from Nazareth to Capernaum. And this is the base of operations for him for about 18 months in his great Galilean ministry. Again, like last week, Matthew uses sort of an economy of words to relate this account, and Mark and Luke have much fuller versions of this account, and and we will rely on them a little bit to fill in some of the details around the edges. Matthew is more succinct, and Matthew is more succinct because he is driving at a theological point, and he wants to make sure that, that we don't get lost in the details and we miss the point somehow. The point is authority. The word appears over and over and over in this text. It's all about authority. So, Jesus came to his own city. Mark tells us, Mark 2, verse 1, that he came to his own home. He came to his own home. Now, Jesus doesn't own a home. He says that pretty clearly in chapter 8 and verse 20 where he says that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, Jesus was not a homeowner. Yet, Mark says he came to his own home. What's up? Well, we're not sure exactly. Here's what I think. I think that he that uh, Jesus is staying with, living with Peter, who does own a home in Capernaum. So I suspect that, that when Mark talks about he coming to, to uh, his own home, he's talking about Peter's house. 
And so it was Peter's house where Jesus would, would conduct himself in his Galilean ministry. It would be his base of operations. Verse 2, they brought to him a paralytic. They brought to him a paralytic. Now, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, again, Mark and Luke fill in some details. When he got back, the news about him and his, his healing ministry, well, he was very widely known at this time, and, and people were attracted, so the crowds showed up. And they showed up to such an extent to the home where he was staying that, that uh, they completely packed it out. Again, Mark tells us that the house is so filled with people, they are so jammed around the doorways that you can't get in or out of the house at this particular time. Included in the crowd, we learn as well, down you can see it in verse 3, the word scribes, and again, Luke Adding in a little bit of help for us here, it says that it includes Pharisees. So we have scribes and Pharisees in the crowd, in the crowd. Now the scribes were the, the lawyers. They were, the, they were those trained in the Mosaic law. They were trained to teach the law. They were trained to apply the law. They were responsible for the oral transmission of the Mosaic law. They were the legal beagles of Old Testament law. So there's a crowd of people, and there's a crowd of religious authorities, Pharisees, and included in them are the lawyers. They're all there. And the house is so stuffed, nobody can get in, nobody can get out, and in that environment, Jesus begins to speak. He begins to speak. Now, once this gets underway, again, back to verse 2, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Mark fills in the detail. There are four friends who bring this paralyzed man, and they are carrying him on a stretcher, probably a light wooden frame with a, with a padded quilt that is stretched over it, and they are bringing him to see Jesus. Why? Well, probably the first and most obvious is because he is paralyzed, and Jesus is healing anyone and everyone who comes to him and seeks his help. So his friends bring him to Jesus to be healed. But because the crowds are so full and the house is so packed out, they can't get in to see him. So they climb up on the roof. They climb up on the roof of the house and, and they, they take the roof off and they lower him down. Now, homes in that day were flat-roofed affairs. They would have an outside staircase in order to ascend to the roof. The roof would be surrounded by a low wall, a parapet like the law, the Mosaic law required. And it would be there on the roof where they, it would be like an extra room, a patio on the roof. There would be the place to sleep on a hot summer night because you'd receive the cooler breezes. There would be a place where you could entertain guests. It would be extra space on the roof of the house. The houses in those days would have roof rafters, and they were roofed over with these large tiles, Luke calls them. They're, they're large pieces of baked clay, and they're laid onto the roof, and, and then they're smeared over with some other clay to waterproof them. So it's up onto this roof, Jesus inside the house teaching away that these very ingenious men 
disassemble the roof and they, they lower the, the stretcher down in front of Jesus. Now, you've got to imagine this, right? I mean, just kind of take a look. Think about that. I mean, not that high a roof, obviously, but, you know, he's waxing eloquent here and there's probably some dust dropping on people's shoulders and but all of a sudden there's daylight streaming down through and down, you know, make the Crystal Cathedral envious. Down comes the stretcher with, with this paralyzed man on it. You've got to believe he stopped, right? I mean, a good preacher can preach through most disturbances, but there are some that require you to stop. I think that was one. So he stops. He stops. And then the most amazing thing happens. The most amazing thing. Take a look back at verse 2. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. Whose faith? I think you have to understand it as the faith of the men who lowered the, the, the pallet, the, the bed, the stretcher, and the man himself. All caught up in that there. Seeing their faith. Well, how did he see it? Well, it's, it's evidenced certainly by the persistent and innovative method by which they brought him before the great healer, right? But I think there's more than that. And certainly as the account develops, I think we can develop that. Jesus is able to see something that no one else can see. He makes a really compassionate statement here, doesn't he? Take courage, son. Take courage, son. It's a, it's a term of endearment. Likely this, this man, he's not too sure about this whole idea. You know, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go up on a roof. We're going to take the roof apart, and I'm going to lower you down. Right. You know, there's some nervousness in this, no doubt. Perhaps nervousness about how will he be received. Right? Jesus is teaching away to the crowd here, and now, boom, you're right in the middle. So he's nervous. He's, he's unsure. Jesus begins very compassionately with him here, and, and he, he just speaks these words to him to reassure him. Take courage, son. Take courage. And then he says something astounding. Absolutely astounding. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. By my authority, your sins are forgiven. Uh, There's no atonement going on here. This this whole encounter, it doesn't occur in the temple. It's not like he he has just been to the temple and and somehow he's offered his sacrifice. And so they're, they're merely pronouncing what the law already says. None of that. This is, this is far from temples. This is far from sacrifices. This is far from, from offerings required under the Mosaic law. This is, this is in a house. And the teacher, the, the miracle worker, the prophet, the carpenter from Galilee, looks at this man, says, it's okay, son. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Beloved, no mere man can make that statement. You know that, right? No mere man can can unconditionally announce forgiveness of sin. 
No mere man can see into the human heart to know what's going on. No mere man can look into the throne room of God and and see what has judicially been rendered there. No mere man can see the unseen. Jesus doesn't say to him, "I, I think God will forgive you. He doesn't say to him, God should forgive you. He doesn't say to him, He will forgive you, provided this condition is met. When we speak of forgiveness of human sins, we always speak of it in a conditional way, or we should. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you believe, you will be saved. You don't see any of that here. Jesus looks into his heart He says to this man, take courage. I have seen your faith. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Right now, in their entirety, completely, totally, forever, forgiven. Beloved, only God, only God makes that kind of an unconditional declaration. I was thinking about this this week and about how to illustrate such things for you. Let's try this. A number of years ago, many years ago, almost two decades now, I, I worked in banking. Many of you know that. And I was a, a commercial loan officer. So part of my responsibilities were to negotiate multi-million dollar lines of credit. So I would sit down with a prospective borrower and we would, we would work out a loan structure and we would be negotiating this loan structure. The interesting thing was that I had no authority, zero, and yet I'm negotiating on behalf of the bank this very large and complex loan structure in which I had no authority to make any commitments for the bank. Yet I had to to project myself to the potential customer or, or existing customer that I had authority. That is, that I had to say and speak to him in such a way that I I can get this done for you. Trust me, I I think I can get this done. But but I knew, and in the back of their minds, they knew, this thing had to go to a loan committee. That it was a loan committee that had to approve the request. And they had the ability to both modify it or just out and out decline it. So here I am negotiating where I have no authority. By the way, think about that the next time you talk to your banker. Okay? He may be dressed in a very nice suit in a very powerful looking office. He has zero authority. Okay? He has zero authority. But that's okay. That's how the system works. Jesus doesn't do that. That's the point. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't have to go back to the Father and get this statement confirmed. He doesn't have to bring it back to loan committee and have them say, okay, yeah, I agree. What you've said is, is what we're going to do. Or, no, you need to modify it. Or, no, are you crazy? We're not going to lend any money there. So, Jesus doesn't enter into any of that. He himself has the authority to speak as God. Why? The answer is simple. He is God. He is the God-man. And so, he speaks, and when he speaks, heaven speaks. Jesus the authority to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. And my friends, he has that authority to say that to you 
today too. Your sins are forgiven. Compassion. Secondly, confrontation. Confrontation. This doesn't go over well. Some of the scribes, some of these lawyers, said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. This fellow blasphemes. Now, Jesus has done some amazing things up to this point, hasn't he? I mean, Matthew is pretty clear to, to show us in the beginning part of his gospel, chapters one, chapter 1, that Jesus' birth is a fulfillment of prophecy, son of Abraham, son of David. We see in chapter 4 that, that Jesus resists Satan's temptations. We see in chapter 5 that, that Jesus spells out the inner character of those who inherit the kingdom. We see in the later part of chapter 5 all the way through 7 that he, that he teaches the authoritatively the true intent of the Mosaic law. The end of chapter 7, verses 13 to 27, he, he warns of impending judgment for those who ignore his, his rule. He's, he's healed the, those that are sick. He has calmed the storm. He has cast out demons. He has done all kinds of things. But he has never done anything like this. According to Matthew's accounting here, he has never done anything like this. And in fact, this is the only place in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus specifically says to an individual, your sins are forgiven. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Only God can do this. And so Mark records the thinking of these, these religious leaders, these scribes, where, where they're saying in their mind, only who can forgive sins but God alone, Mark chapter 2 verse 7. Who can do this but, but God alone? And that's because, because sin fundamentally is an offense against God, right? Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's an offense against God. Beloved, in terms of authority, what's happening here is bigger than, transcends anything that has gone before. Anything that has gone before. The ability to forgive sin far and away exceeds the ability to do any natural miracles. Now, that might be hard for you to, to wrap your mind around, right? There are some spectacular natural miracles. But the authority to forgive sin transcends them all. Transcends them all. Listen, Healing someone provides only temporary relief. Isn't that true? Only temporary relief because, because eventually it's appointed unto man to die once and then comes the judgment. I've often said that I don't know that Jesus did Lazarus all that much of a favor raising him from the dead, right? Because he only had to die again. Right? Death stalks all of us. And so to conduct a healing ministry is to, is to temporarily provide relief for human misery. But it is not dealing with the root cause of human ministry, misery. It doesn't get down to the fundamental issue. It is only temporal. The root cause remains. And the root cause of all human misery is sin. Is sin. So unless Jesus can authoritatively deal with sin, there is no way he can bring in Messiah's kingdom, the time of peace and prosperity. Forgiveness must precede it. 
And so spectacular as these earlier miracles have been, and, and they've been pretty spectacular, this is the big one. This is the big one. Now, when the Jewish leaders, they, they heard him say to this man, your sins are forgiven, they, they immediately in their own minds conclude this guy is a blasphemer. This fellow blasphemes, the end of verse 3. Blasphemy, by the way, in the Old Testament law was a sin punishable by stoning, death. This is no small matter. The blaspheme fundamentally means to, to say something that slanders God. To say something that slanders God. They kind of expand the definition here in their mind a little bit to, to basically catch up Jesus' claim here to do something that only God can do. That's the core charge here. You are claiming to do what only God can do. You, a Galilean carpenter, are now claiming the divine prerogative to forgive sin. And in doing this, which is patently false, you are, you are violating the majesty and the glory of God himself. You are a blasphemer. You're a blasphemer. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts says to them, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? (laughs) Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? They haven't voiced anything yet. He's just able to, to read what's going on here. And he challenges them. He challenges them really to, to consider all the facts before, before arriving at their decision. Evil in your hearts. That, that is, that you have, you have decided in advance, before you have properly weighed all of the evidence, what the result is. You've judged me to be a blasphemer. Hang on. Wait. Think about this a little. But they're hostile. They are hostile to him. This is the first recorded instance here, really, of, of Jewish hostility, leaders, leadership hostility that is only going to intensify as, as Matthew continues. By the time we get to chapter 12, it's going to be so intense that they will commit the unforgivable sin. The hostility is building because of the evil in their hearts. It's a confrontation here. Third word, contemplation. Contemplation. And yes, I got all five with C's. Yeah, I know. There's only one or two sharp people in the room who have figured it out so far. Seeing forgiveness, right? Eh, forget it. <laughs> Andy, I, was, I worked hard on that. Did I do a good job? Did you get it? He did get it. Okay. That's good. Where's John when I need him? <laughs> Contemplation. Verse 5, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Jesus doesn't deny the premise here, by the way, that only God forgives sins. He doesn't deny that premise at all. What what he wants them to reflect upon is, is the situation in front of their eyes. So he asks them a rhetorical question. It's, a, it's a, just a simple rhetorical question. He wants them to make a comparison. He wants them to compare between what is seen and what is unseen, what is hard and what is easy. Just think about it. 
The comparison is not between which is harder to, to forgive sin or to, to uh, heal this paralyzed man, but which is easier to say to someone. Is it easier to say to someone, your sin are, is forgiven, your sins are forgiven, because that is an invisible reality, right? It's pretty hard to subject it to any kind of empirical falsification, at least until it's too late. Or is it easier to say to a paralyzed man who is so paralyzed he has to be lowered on a, on a, on a stretcher down in front of Jesus to say to him, get up and walk? Which obviously, if you, if you were to say that, and the man doesn't get up and walk, it's apparent to everyone. So which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Or get up and walk. See, he wants him to contemplate this reality. The, the authority to heal points to the authority to forgive. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's not just a circus sideshow. He's not one who just goes around indiscriminately with acts of kingdom power and authority just to make life easier for people for a, a few years until they're all going to die anyway. There's something way bigger going on here. And he wants them to think about it. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, provided when he says to the man, get up and walk, the man gets up and walks. The man gets up and walks. He wants the scribes, he wants the crowds Friends, he wants you and I to think about this. Think about this. Because he's going to do something that's going to blow your minds. And he doesn't want you to miss it. Compassion. Confrontation. Contemplation. Fourth, confirmation. You knew I could do it confirmation. Verse 6, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then parenthetically, he turns to the paralytic, right? And he says, get up, pick up your bed and go home. proof of his authority to forgive sin lies in his power to heal this man. So he directs this paralyzed man to act in a way that is only possible if he is completely restored. He doesn't say roll off the stretcher and crawl out. You know? You're getting bitter all the time. Just have faith. Oops, not enough faith. Sorry. Get up. Stand on your feet. Pick up your bed and go home. And go home. There's no question, no possibility of falsification here. Jesus not only heals 
this man. He, he infuses him with strength. He is offering a, a visible proof of his invisible authority. The question isn't, can I heal? They already know he can heal. They wouldn't be there if he couldn't heal, right? The only reason the house is packed out is because of his healing ministry. They're coming from everywhere to be there. So it's not a question of, can I heal this one? Hey, let's get together. You know, he's been healing all kinds of people. Let's see if he can heal that one. That's not, the, that's not the question. It's the wrong question to ask. The question is not can I heal, but the question is when I heal, what does it mean? That's the question. That's the question that has to be asked. When I heal this man, what does it mean? It means that I, as the Son of Man, Reference back into Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, right? I, as the Son of Man, have authority over the kingdom, including entrance into the kingdom. Unless one be born from above, he will not see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3. Verse 7, so understated. The man got up and went home. The man got up and went home. Imagine. Can you imagine? My jaws. Buzz goes through the crowd, right? Those that are up close in front see first and passes through the crowd and like the parting of the Red Sea, you know, they kind of pull back. So this guy can walk out. He's got his bed under his arm. Amazing. Just amazing. And that takes us to our fifth and final conclusion. Our conclusion. Verse 8. But when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck. They were awestruck. And it glorified God who had given such authority to men. They are awed by the authority they see. The authority to forgive sin, which belongs only to who? To God. And it has been obviously given to a man, Jesus. Well, what do you make of all of that? What in the world do you make of all of that? They're awed by it. They glorify God. I mean, in, for just a moment, it's, it's like the curtains of, of heaven were parted, and they, and they looked into the throne room, and, and they saw something amazing. And then, whew, it's gone. It just kind of flashed before their eyes. They're amazed. 
They're odd. But in the end, they are unmoved. See, in the end, they are unmoved by this. I mean, you you go over here to, to chapter 11. Verse 23. Pick it up in verse 20, but chapter 11. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile cities. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. They're awestruck. They give glory to God. They're blown away. And then it's in one ear and out the other. No change. No transformation. No repentance. No faith in Messiah. Come on, Jesus, give us another miracle. Just one more. Just one more. No other miracles for you. No more miracles for you. What is plain and apparent right in your midst, and you refuse it. Well, the obvious question is, how about you? How about you this morning? What are you going to do with this passage? Are you going to be amazed? Are you going to say, wow, that was cool. That was so cool. I, I, you know, I like the way they opened the roof up, you know, and they lowered him down and just speaks a word and he's healed and he walks out. Wow, that was, I can remember that from Sunday school. No change, though. Here today, gone tomorrow. Listen, beloved, it's it's very easy to be temporarily amazed by Jesus. Very easy to be temporarily amazed. What is exceedingly difficult is to follow him. It is to follow him. And we only follow him through forgiveness. And the only one who can grant forgiveness is Jesus himself. You can't earn it. You can't put yourself in a, in a favorable position with him to incline him towards you. There's no gift you can give him, no promise you can make, no devotion or dedication that will impress him in some way. It is entirely Depended on his grace. But what are you going to do with him? 
Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. What will you do with Jesus today? As we finish up here in a minute or two, they'll, people will start to get up and they'll mill around and there'll be a lot of talking and crowds and so forth. But if God is placing it upon your heart right now, that you know you're not right with God. You're not reconciled to Him. You, you have no assurance of forgiveness. And you desire such things. And I want, you to, I want you to imitate the faith of the paralytic here. I want you to push your way through the crowds. I want you to come down front here. I want to talk to you. I want to open the Word of God with you and show you how, based on the promises of the Word of God, that you can know forgiveness. That you can have life everlasting. That you can be reconciled to your Creator permanently. And begin to enjoy the life that, that God has designed for you to have. It will be a life that will be marked with difficulties, to be sure. But your soul will be right with God. And there is no greater gift. Let's pray. Our Father, how easily we can read these words in this passage and for a few brief moments even be somewhat odd when we think about it. Healing of this paralyzed man and the means in which it was done is astounding. Nothing like it has ever been seen before or since. There's a clear demonstration of the, of the future kingdom breaking into the here and now. It is embodied in Jesus, your own Son. And yet, our Father, so easily we can have that slip from our grasp, fall back into the old ways, the sin that so easily tangles us. I pray this morning for those who are here in this place right now, who know that they're not right with God. There is this, this sense within them, their, their conscience is speaking to them even now and saying, become reconciled to God. May you and your mercy draw them that they might come and find the path to life everlasting. And I pray, O oh Lord, for those who have found the path, those who are on the path. May these words this morning be a good reminder to them that there is only one path. There is no other way. And when we are tempted to stray from the narrow path of following Christ, may this 
Be used of your spirit to draw us back. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him. Help us to believe that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, beloved.